Welcome to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Francis-Ward. This month, in connection with our Legal Rebels project, which is sponsored by Abacus, we wanted to look at the growing field of virtual law practices. Opportunities are growing for lawyers to practice law in digital spaces, but clients still want and need individual attention. If you have a virtual law practice, how can you provide the handholding necessary for clients? I've invited three guests to speak with us today, all of whom have been featured as legal rebels in the past. Michelle Crosby is the founder of WeVorce, a startup which helps couples negotiate and finalize their divorces. Stephanie Kimbrough spent 10 years practicing law through a virtual firm and has written various books about virtual law practice. And Fred Rooney is credited with starting one of the first postgraduate law firm incubators in 2007. When we return, they'll share their thoughts with us. This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next. Folder sharing on Westlaw Next enables you to tap into previous research across organizational boundaries like never before, saving you time from reinventing the wheel. Learn more at westlawnext.com. Getting a personal connection with clients is really important, particularly when you represent consumers. How do you do that when you don't see them face to face? And Michelle, do you want to take that first? Sure. Um, well, we use what we call the high-tech and high-touch approach. Um, so we're actually using a hybrid of virtual and in-office mediations. And by that, I mean we generally have one live person in the mediation sessions, um, and then we'll type in um, our team members, which can be a fiscal mediator or a parenting mediator. Um, and we also, to make that the best experience for the clients, use the best equipment that we found for sound and video and lighting. So our virtual mediators are literally working within a soundstage so that it is a, an incredible visual experience for those clients and that we're not losing anything um, on the microphones um, so that everyone can hear exactly what everyone is saying. So that helps it make it seamless for the client um, and for our mediators. Uh, I just wanted to another question. When you say there is a live person, but they're not face-to-face, they'd be speaking over the computer, correct? Well, we are in 10 locations, so that means um, we have 10 physical locations across the country. So if a family comes in and they are able to, um, they are within driving distance or can make it to one of our offices, that's an option for them. Um, And so they'll actually be meeting with one live person who facilitates the conversation um, and then works with our virtual team of mediators in their conference room. If families are outside of those 10 locations, we still are able to provide virtual mediations to them, and then the whole team does appear virtually. Okay. And what are some of the price, if you can give me examples of price differences between going to a virtual office for a service versus going to a bricks-and-mortar law firm? Well, we're able to provide uh, our services uh, about a third of the cost of a traditional lawyer. Um, And by our services, I mean most of our families are working with three professionals, not just a lawyer. So they have an attorney mediator, a mediator with a background in finance, and also a mediator with a background in child development. So all of those services are offered at a third of the cost of just one lawyer. Um, So that's a pretty phenomenal cost savings um, because of the technology and virtual services that we use. You know, in, in many ways, the, um, the issue of people in, in very small community-based solo or small firm practices is a lot different than some of the, the firms that have multiple locations and all kinds of great technology. I think that you, you know, we're seeing a, a proliferation of uh, solo and small firm practitioners 
using the very basic tools uh, like like the internet or Skype, and that um, you know more and more people are are not necessarily des- uh, demanding to have that sit down face to face kind of meeting. I mean, if you think of the, the whole change in in the way we communicate, so much of it now is in you know is either through messages, text messages, and so. It's, it's, it's the whole idea of, of having clients having to sit down is no longer um, the case and that you don't need a whole lot of high-tech equipment to be able to carry out a virtual practice. You know, as I said, some very basic tools make it extremely easy for people to communicate uh, and, you know, in a becoming more conventional way. I think that's a really interesting point, Fred. And one thing I have been curious about, I think sometimes, not always, but sometimes when you're representing consumers and they're in high emotions issues, your client might have to be told five or ten times what you think would probably be a good thing for him or her. But it takes that client a while to really hear it and sink in. And oftentimes it seems like those conversations are in person or on the phone. So I'm curious about how, you know, because like I said, sometimes you have to tell your client things various times to get them to really hear it. What are your thoughts on how that would work out with virtual law services? And anyone could take that. People are on the other end listening. And, and I agree with you after years of practice, how many times do you have to tell a person something before it sinks in? But I don't really see that very different than it would be if you're sitting down face-to-face with. So they'll take it in an email, just like they would in a face-to-face conversation? I mean, when they come to you, they're coming because they know you have the knowledge that they're looking for. And sometimes they don't want to hear what you have to say. And that could be online. It could be face-to-face. I mean, that's a problem that we lawyers always uh, have to deal with, who are sometimes the bearer of bad news. But Ultimately, they're going to figure out that either they're going to do it on their own or they're going to listen to what you have to say. And and once they do, then you can proceed accordingly. Does someone want to add on to what Fred just said? Sure. I was just going to add that I agree with Fred in the fact that that's that's a um, relationship uh, that you face with your client often, whether they're in person or virtual. Um, And so in our model, we work proactively. We brought in neuroscience to really help the client understand the difference, you know, when they're having an emotional experience, neuroscience has now taught us that emotion stronger than logical thought. And so our mediators and our clients are now using that same language to realize when they flip their lid, we call it, the frontal cortex isn't engaged, we call it puppy brain, so that they're able to kind of stop that moment and realize that they're having an emotional experience and then now is not the time to talk logic. What are the steps we can take to engage what we call their wise owl brain and get them back to that logical position where they can hear the mediator, where they can hear the other spouse. And so that they're working within the reality, whether you're virtual or in person, um, of what it's like to be human going through conflict. Um, I think I read somewhere that it was said that WeVorce, uh, Michelle's company, it wouldn't work for all uh, divorce cases. Is that, is that kind of, is that correct, Michelle, do you think? Yes, well, we're we're very clear that we're not for everyone. We require that our families work together to go through the the process and sit down together. That's not going to work for every family. There is an existing system of the courthouse that where families need the lawyers to walk them through. Um, And so that's part of our screening process is the first question they're asked is, are you willing to go through this divorce process together, sitting down at the table or working um, virtually? 
um, getting the same information at the same time. And then we, the second question in our screening process is, are you comfortable not filing legal documents to the end? So if they say yes to both of those questions, we're more than comfortable working with them. Um, but that is a pretty big screening process um, for a lot of families that do need legal support or other services out there. Are there some situations where your mediator might have an initial meeting with a couple and they just know, oh, this is not going to work for them? It's going to be too intense, too much fight. It's, this is probably not going to be their best use of funds to purchase our services. Yeah, by that point, generally, the screening process has, um, by the time they meet with one of our team members, by that time, most of those families have been um, screened out and that we've referred them out. Um, again, many of our families, we do refer out um, to litigators in the areas that we are or to collaborative law professionals or other more affordable mediation services. So we're continually to build that community and making sure that the clients get matched with that service that they need. Um, but most cases, you know, most of us know that nationally, most cases settle before they get to trial. And so a lot of our, our movement and conversation is around saying, hey, if you start with the settlement process, you can at least figure out which pieces you can agree on. Um, and then those other pieces you may have to litigate. And so we're starting to shift that conversation to start with settlement first, because a lot of that litigation mindset um, that they walk into can stop and inhibit and slow down that settlement process in the back end. I have a question for all of you. I'm hoping you can provide a, just a brief sketch for our listeners. Who is, generally speaking, the perfect client to use a virtual law firm? Stephanie, do you want to go ahead and take that one first? Um, the perfect client for a virtual law firm? Well, I think it depends on the structure of the virtual law firm. So if it's a hybrid where they could come do a combination of both in-person and online, I think that's a very different client than one that a completely web-based um, virtual firm would be able to deliver. And I think it comes down to basic unbundling best practices. So the primary method of delivery through a purely virtual law firm is unbundling. And unbundling ethically under Model Rule 1.2 can only be done if it's reasonable under the circumstances. So uh, like Michelle was saying, they do a very thorough, it sounds like, intake process, client intake process to screen when it's appropriate and what's appropriate and when um, for which client. And I think it's the same thing for a virtual law firm, that uh, really thorough client intake and onboarding process to determine based on the client's not only their legal needs, but their um, ability to communicate effectively through the technology that structure has, um, whether or not they can, they're a good match for online delivery. And for us, I mean, we find that best fit is for those families that literally do live in two locations. Without some type of virtual service, they wouldn't be able to do this. They would be stuck. Um, and so the virtual services allow them from two very different locations to be working and meeting together. Um, and so that's the, the easiest and best example that we have um, for families that it works really well for. Um, and the other one is just, you know, there are, as as people, as um, Fred said, we're getting more and more comfortable living and working and doing most of the things even within our phones. That didn't exist 10 years ago. So the more and more comfortable people get, um, we have lots of families that are more comfortable working in the comfort of their own home, especially in the bigger cities. Um, you know, we're headquartered in the Bay Area. Um, but driving, you know, during rush hour traffic into the city, if you're out in the peninsula, can take hours. Um, so it allows them to be more efficient with their time as well. Yeah, and, and, and the perfect 
client for, I guess in my opinion, I don't know what a perfect client is. Um, one of the most appreciative clients are those people who live outside of the U.S. And I deal with an ever-growing number of people all over the world who have some type of connection to the U.S. And it's, it's I mean, it's, it's very similar to being in the Bay Area and then being in the peninsula or, you know, when there's a, a geographic divide, it's a great way to be able to, to bridge that. But when the divide is is across borders, it becomes even, you know, a much, much more effective way of being able to deal with legal issues. And so, you know, I came in from the Dominican Republic this morning and I was in a remote uh, area on the top of a mountain where you could get a signal. But sure enough, calls came in from clients who were, were interested in talking about their legal issues. People who don't have the ability to get a visa to come into the States, but who have a child support issue in wherever it may be, the Dominican Republic or anywhere around the world, can now have access to lawyers via Skype. People who have immigration questions and people who have been deported. And there's so many people in a, in a world that's becoming you know, much, much smaller. We desperately need to have access to high competent, high quality competent lawyers, and they can do it now either online by Skype or by phone. And another I'm example I can give to that is well, we have a child development specialist that specializes in working with family or children with autism during divorce and developing really unique parenting plans for them. Um, and so we're now able to connect her with lawyers across the country who need that service but otherwise wouldn't be able to connect with a professional like that. So we're also seeing the benefit for the professional. And I'm curious if you think for some practices and certain types of practices like employment work and family law come to mind where maybe you have a client who, you know, really you can't obviously you can't make any promises. Maybe they're really concerned about losing custody and they want to talk to you or perhaps you have an employment client who you've got a really good settlement offer, but they want to be heard in court. I'm curious for practices that can be very contentious and personal. Do you think that there's always going to be practices and there will always be a need for lawyers to handle those cases in person? I think that there will always be a need just because oftentimes the, the best way to prevail is to be able to help your client understand how to present himself or herself in court. And if it requires a court appearance, uh, you know, there is some value to being able to do preliminary, uh, provide them with preliminary support by phone, by by via the internet. But ultimately, when the credibility of the individual is going to be weighed heavily in in, in a court of law, a lot of times it, it, it's it's very important to sit down and, and have that kind of contact with with your client. I go so far as to say that it's unethical um, in some cases to deliver things completely online. Uh, you can't thinking of criminal defense matters or really complex child custody matters. Um, and then there are some states that have um, restrictions against limited appearances and ghostwriting rules um, where I don't think it can all be done online. So I think in some cases uh, you have to, to say is it in the best interests of this client you know, if the lawyer only does a limited representation and it's online, or do they really need that that full service representation? Yeah, and and that's why we always encourage if the families are within the location um, that they do come in office. I mean, divorce test is the second most stressful event you can go through. Um, human beings need to connect. It's very helpful. 
Um, and, and the virtual services allow us to be more efficient and to get, help more families um, that otherwise can't get to those locations. But that, you know, we, we really believe that divorce isn't a legal problem. It just has legal implications. And so, so much of what the families are going through is better supported when there is someone there to, uh, to meet with, an accountability partner and someone to be in the room with. Um, have any of you heard of any civil courts that have virtual appearances now? One thing that came to mind, which I thought could be fabulous, would be housing court. Um, do you know of anything like that yet? And could you see it in the future? I know that in New York City, uh, there's an organization that was able to acquire a, a mobile van. It's a mobile justice center. And they have the capability of, of going online in, in cases of domestic violence, being able to have a, a hearing uh, online from the, the, the mobile center. And uh, it, it'll link the... the the um, the, per- the petitioner and and the person on the layer on the van directly to the courts and so that's a, an amazing way of being able to get immediate relief uh, and not have to, to 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 get into the court to do it. My goal is to keep families out of court. So I don't I don't know much about that one. So I think one thing that has come up when I've chatted with solos or small firm folks who represent uh, consumers. I guess the big question is, is how, what, if you can give me, the three of you, give me one tip on making that personal connection and doing it online. So combining the personal connection of perhaps like automation and things like that, that can uh, make it more affordable for the client and make you, help you be more efficient as a lawyer. Stephanie, do you have a tip for us? I think that finding a way to, for a solo and small firm, to design their website, so basically the front door to their services, in a way that engages that online client, gets them interested, builds an initial amount of trust, um, that goes a long way. So, like right now, I'm researching the use of games and gamification as ways that lawyers can you know, effectively engage that prospective client in whatever the practice area is that the client is looking for help in. But sort of an initial kind of warm-up education empowerment that happens online before that prospective client registers, you know, for access or to ask a question of the, the, the online lawyer. Um, I think that that really helps prepare them when you start working with the client, then you move from there to web conferencing, you know, have a Google Hangout or you Skype or real-time chat or whatever the virtual law firm uses to communicate. But I think that initial online engagement um, is really critical. Okay. And Fred, what's your one brief tip? My one brief tip is is very personal. Uh, I started working last year uh, on Long Island. And shortly after I started, I received two tickets for Going through uh, uh, turning red, turning right on red, and I, you know, I got the citations, and I said, I don't know why I'm getting this. I don't, and I was frantic because I didn't want to have to pay like two hundred dollars in, in fines. So I went online, and sure enough, there was a, a, a lawyer on Long Island, not too far from where um, I was ticketed, and he, he gave some very practical advice on what to do when you are cited for going turning right on on red. So I 
I contacted him online, sent him an email, and he wrote back to me and, and, and told me basically, based on the way I, I, I didn't stop, I didn't know they had to make a full stop, he told me that I didn't have much of a, uh, a chance of prevailing. And so uh, I was very, very grateful for, this, for the information that he provided at no cost uh, online on his website and for the fact that he even responded to me. And I know that had I decided to go ahead, because I did appeal it, that I would have gone to him because he he was there when, when I needed it and he was the person, the only person I would have thought to call. So I, I think that that kind of uh, information is, is extremely helpful and provides consumers with at least a, a, a beginning, a, a, a way to, to approach the issue. And then, of course, it becomes lucrative for lawyers who then receive clients based on the fact that they have user-friendly and supportive websites. And Michelle, how about you? What's your one brief tip? My tip is for uh, us as a practice is to really start embracing the innovation. I mean, there are 350 startups up there all out in the law trying to make lawyers more efficient at what they do. Um, and so we as a collective, it's time to start looking at how we become more efficient. Um, and, you know, as each new generation moves into the law, I think we're going to be seeing more and more requests for it. I mean, it's just part of part of our daily lives. And so how do we bring that into our practice to make us more efficient so that we can offer more affordable services so we can help more people? Okay. And that's everything we have today. I want to thank you all so much. This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, powered by WestSearch, the world's most advanced legal search engine delivering the best results in seconds. Learn more at westlawnext.com.